Welcome, everybody, to the All About Symbian Insight podcast, recording this on Monday, the 27th of May, 2013. I'm Steve Litchfield. It's been a while since our last podcast, about three weeks, but we do have Mr. Rafe Blandford on the line. Indeed, we do. And I'd like to say thank you to all our faithful listeners. It's, I think the Symbian faithful are still listening to this podcast, which we very much appreciate. And Steve and I, as I guess we could, could say, you know, we're still Symbian faithful as well, still regularly using our devices. Um, and it's much appreciated, some of the feedback and the comments we do get. Yeah, absolutely. We had the um, articles recently, uh, Rafe, at the uh, uh, Symbian home screens, the NHD devices, and also for the E6 home screens uh, article, which went live yesterday. And both of that, uh, both those articles have had some really good feedback. And it's been great seeing not just a cross-section of people's ideas for their home screens on the Symbian devices, but also the cross-section across the world. So you've got different operator names, and in some cases, even different languages, which is, uh, you know, just shows the breadth of the Symbian community. Absolutely. And it actually, for me, it was kind of a timely reminder that there are a lot of people out there using these devices. Now, it may sound slightly funny saying that having in previous week talked about the size of the install base and the fact there's lots of people using it. But when there's kind of a real home screen, if you like, attached to that with a name and someone who's you know taking the time to write in and share their thoughts, which, you know, as I say, we really appreciate it, it, it does bring it home to you and you know I spend some of my time talking to other people who write about mobile you know when I'm at a, a Nokia launch event and, and people are often quite rude about Symbian they say oh, why are you even bothering to still do it and actually it gives me heart when I, I see things like that because actually there are people still using it and it is a, an action and I think uh, perhaps people in the industry and you know, people writing about it and developers could be reminded about that you know not everybody replaces their devices every couple of months as a lot of these people yeah. you know naturally at these events it's not surprising you know often they're being loaned devices by pr companies or you know they're really into mobile but you know people using the n8 actively and there's a lot of people i noticed on the all about Indian community in particular still using that device and understand why because honestly i i think aside from the 808 there isn't anything that really replaces it if you're into the the camera stuff and the Symbian stuff in the, in the same way. And in some ways, I, I feel that the N8 is a more mainstream device than the 808, just because it's been more readily available. And um, I'm still very fond of that all-metal uh, design. And it's kind of interesting seeing Nokia come back to that with the, the launch run I'm talking about, was for the Lumia 95. They've kind of reintroduced um, aluminium on that device. And it's just on a frame around the edges and sort of talking excitedly about what an interesting material it is and how innovative it was. I couldn't help but think back to the N8, which is, uh, I'm sure everyone listening to this one is basically all aluminium. It's anodized with some really nice colors. It's got the end caps on to kind of, which are plastic to solve that aerial issue. They do it slightly differently on the uh, 925, but it kind of reminded me of the old edges that the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, the, the, the one catch, of course, with the N8 in the modern world is that it uses the full-size SIM card, and you can't readily use a SIM card adapter with a micro SIM. So, my, unfortunately, my N8, much as I love it to bits, it just sat on my desk basically doing nothing for the last year or so since I had the 808, and I converted my SIM to a micro SIM because I just can't bear to risk damaging those SIM card contacts by using a, a micro SIM with an adapter, which is a real shame. It, it is. I mean, and I know a lot of people are using the N8 in sort of a, a SIM-free mode, as, uh, essentially as a smart camera, but I actually maintain a pay-as-you-go SIM card just for the N8 and actually other devices that have yeah. a, a full-size 
sim car but yes it's kind of interesting that we've got to, i can remember when micro sim being introduced and sort of being a little annoyed about it but there was good reason for it because actually that sim card was of course one of the biggest components internally in a phone and took up lots of space and so basically resulted in some design compromises that were optimal and going down to micro sim help with that the nano sim i'm less convinced by that simply because the size difference is, isn't all that big i mean it's just a few millimeters well even that can make a difference um, but yes, you're right. You know, it, it kind of with the N8 with that integral slot. You, I I wouldn't risk putting um, a SIM adapter. I know people have and have ended up damaging the contacts a little bit, um, which is a, which is a shame. But it's now getting to the point where actually, yes, I, I kind of want to convert this pairs you go SIM card I have across to micro SIM because there are very few devices that actually use it, in, and I tend to have to swap my micro SIM uh, between quite a few different devices. Um, so uh, kind of un. un unintended consequence or sort of it's now actually really kicking in for me that change of sim card format yeah yeah there was also the um the slight kludge we did report on the site with a guy using a sellotape piece of sellotape suitably folded over so basically you have the micro sim mounted on a tab of sellotape and then you poke it in the right place and the sellotape holds it in place and you don't need the adapter at all and that of course is a slightly safer route to go but i i'm sorry that's just using sellotape in a, in a sim card <laughs> like, like the kludge of all kludges well, also, I'm not quite sure what some of the chemicals on the sellotape would do to those contacts. Um, yeah, it, it, it works, but we don't recommend it at home. If you are going to want to keep using your N8, I think the, the best solution is to go out and get a, a pay-as-you-go SIM card, especially now. I mean, it, it tends to be, you know, if, if you want with the Symbian devices, it's quite easy to turn off data altogether, and you can do that and then sort of opt to turn it on. And a lot of these pay-as-you-go SIM cards, particularly here in the UK, it will be different in other markets. You can pay something like 25 or 50p and get a, a reasonable amount of data for a day, enough for the use of that device for the day. And actually, that tends to be the approach I take and you know, I, I top it up pretty irregularly actually um, and then use the data when, when I need to but a lot of the time I, I don't even uh, need that kind of cellular data because I come back and use it on Wi-Fi if there's you know, photos I want to share or something like that uh, but it, uh, I guess I'm a little bit unusual in that I know there are people who are using it still as their main device and I can only applaud you for doing so for having very good taste. Well, indeed. Uh, and Ditto the E6, uh, which is the thing we posted the article about the home screens yesterday, and amazes people still that uh, the E6 is people's main device. But as with the N8, it has its own unique um, form factor, its own unique hardware characteristics. And yes, I, I applaud it, and I can absolutely see the reason why people might still choose yeah. these devices. Yeah, I have to admit personally with the E6, I mean, I think anyone listening to this will know I really like the kind of the E series of devices, the E71, the 72, and then the E6 there. I have to admit, I pretty much stop using that now. I can't really go back to the, the smaller physical screen size. I mean, it's kind of ironic given it's got a pretty decent resolution and pixels per inch, but just in terms of the amount I can kind of get on screen, it feels like less, and maybe it's also that square form factor. Uh, uh, I don't know what it is, you know, but it's not that it's a bad device, it's just no longer suited for my particular way of using it but there i know i mean i saw a couple of them out in the wild and someone was asking me about can i get such and such thing on it I said, yes and i i have sympathy for e6 users because they do tend to have to be a few more workarounds when you're trying out new software I mean, a lot of developers very good and check and make sure it works but it doesn't apply to all the apps we feature on the site i know that 
Yeah, I, I would say probably half the things we feature on the site, half the utilities and applications and patches and stuff, they never actually get to E6 at all, so I do sympathise. But then again, E6 owners are used to being self-contained and <laughs> adaptable and flexible and resourceful, so I'm sure they, they can rise to the challenge. Indeed, and, and I think they're probably different sort of user when you're messaging-centric and maybe you, you want that keyboard and you're probably using the built-in apps more than anything yeah. else. And actually, talking to a lot of the, the symbionos, the ones I come across in the wild, if you like, and not writing into all about Symbian because I think you're the elite Symbian user if you're doing that actually tend to be using the phone without installing many third-party apps and it tends to be that it's not that they uh, go looking for them and can't find them they're just not interested at all and they will sometimes have uh, an iPad or an iPod touch or something like that install things on there but one I was talking to you said I don't really get the whole app phenomenon I just don't use them that much I haven't got enough time which is a view I'm not unsympathetic to uh, I think sometimes the, the talk of apps does get a bit overhyped and uh, you know, the idea that everyone's downloading, installing tens or even hundreds of apps, uh, I'm not sure is necessarily supported by the evidence. There's certainly market segments that do do that and are very app happy, if you like. But equally well, I think there's a, a, a sizable segment of users or rather multiple segments who you know will install a handful um, or maybe not any at all. Uh, I guess it goes back to this thing we have to keep reminding ourselves that even in the more mature markets, you know, most most smartphone penetration, i.e. the number of people with smartphones, is still only just over 50%. So there are a lot of people using mobile phones out there. And I think of you know the people using smartphones, there's a lot of people using smartphones who are really just using them as they would a feature phone and maybe installing one or two apps. Uh, so it's uh, getting a bit off subject there. Sorry, Steve, I'm waffling again. No, I'm really enjoying the waffle. I'm just, I was just thinking about the E6 there. Uh, probably a typical use case. Um, you have an E6 as your main smartphone. It's got the big battery. It's got your main data SIM in, and you can put it on JoyQ Spot and run it as a Wi-Fi hotspot, for example. Um, and you then have uh, perhaps an iPad mini. Uh, was a great companion. So both devices probably last two days on one charge, and you've got the bigger screen for doing all the web browsing and the graphical stuff and the games and the multimedia and the YouTubing and so off, so forth, maybe over Wi-Fi. But you've got the E6 as the, you know, the, the definitive small-in-the-hand, long-battery-lived, messaging-focused communicator, um, and the two really work well together. So I, I think the E6 still does work very much, but probably as part of a two-device setup. I think that's right, and it's interesting. I've seen more people with this two-device setup, and actually it's been with the, the Nexus 7 and other Android tablets also, the Kindle Fire. And it is often people who are, are maybe, I think it's fair to say, not uh, technologists, you know, they're not early adopters. They've kind of seen these advertised on the television and didn't necessarily want to go the full smartphone route, or at least that's how they describe themselves. Or, or sometimes they have gone the small part, they're going something else as well, but have dropped back to having a, a, a different phone. And I kind of wonder, I mean, we've got the Simeon devices doing this. Nokia recently announced their kind of new Azure phones, which was based on a whole new Azure platform, which we might talk about a little bit in a future podcast once we've had a chance to try them out, because it's very much based on kind of some of the design language that was in the N9 Amigo Hartmatten, um, which I think some, you know, Symbian fans will be familiar with. And I wonder whether that whole segment is kind of uh, an intelligent device um, or semi-intelligent or semi-smart device, depending on the way you want to describe it, is then, you know, accompanied by some kind of tablet, especially now, you know, they're coming down to the $100 mark in some cases you can pick up an Android tablet for. And it, it kind of gets around the limitations that you uh, inherent to any smartphone that, you know, the screen can only be so big, you can only have, you know, so much battery capacity and power, etc. in it. 
Um, and I think actually it's the screen size is the big limiting factor because having a bigger screen when you're doing, you know, consuming of any kind of content is generally better. But most people don't always want to carry that bigger screen because it makes the device bigger. It doesn't fit in their pocket and et cetera, et cetera. So we've seen the rise of, you know, these um, so-called phablet phones or tablets crossed with smartphones. It's not a terminology I'm particularly fond of, but that's because people want to retain one device. But the alternative to that is, of course, to have, you know, two devices, which is an approach that, that seems not entirely um, stupid to me. Uh, I don't know. It, it's difficult to tell, you know, when you're looking at these kind of industry trends, saying that one is going to win over the other is, is next to impossible. But in some ways, this, you know, two device approach to say that the relatively cheap uh, tablet, that could be iPad mini, it could be a Android tablet, uh, coupled with a relatively cheap phone can often be a cheaper solution than carrying around, you know, a bigger size tablet plus a phone, which you'll generally need as well. Um, yeah. So it's kind of the more economic. So I, I think particularly as that trend goes further and further down the market segments, you know, away from early adopters, the two device solution might, if anything, become more popular. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see on that one. Yeah, I, I agree. And just a, a final comment there. I think that the big killer really is battery life in that the, 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 the larger screen phones. And I've, I've been playing with the Samsung Galaxy, 3, Galaxy S3, the Galaxy S4. I've got a Galaxy Nexus here. Um, even the, you know, the Lumia 925, they're all big screen phone with fairly big batteries. But because they're big screen phone, you use them for a fairly intensive multimedia work. And you use them for more web browsing. You use them for a different use case. And you basically burn through battery faster. So none of these devices actually get me through a day if I'm also using it as my main 3.5G connected phone. Whereas having a two-device solution is I have a, a bog-standard reliable, uh, robust, something like an E6 or something that's basically not going to let me down. It will run two or three days on a charge as my main phone, my main communicator, and you have the other device, and it doesn't matter if the game's in multimedia part of the solution. If the battery dies, okay, so there's no more games until I get back to a charging point, but the phone calls are still going to come through the text, the emails, and social and so forth. So I'm, I'm <laughs> definitely edging that way. That's right, and it, uh, we, we should probably say it doesn't have to be one of these bog-standard uh, phones necessarily i mean it can be you know a high-end symbian phone it can be a windows phone it could be a high-end android phone but i think typically it will be one of the the, the smaller ones i you know not the big screen and you can get yeah. big screen right up to galaxy note 2 and sometimes the battery life gets more acceptable if they pack in the really really big batteries but then the problem is it, it's sort of no longer a pocketable mobile device starts coming in for some people it's not an issue because they're carrying a bag or you know they've got big pockets but a lot of people i think you know there is a reason phones spent so long around that three and a half inch size, at least initially for touch and then small. I mean, even that three and a half inch touch, I mean, that was kind of the size at which phones were, even when they were smaller screens with, you know, keyboards, whether they were 12 key or QWERTY. Um, and I think, I mean, I still feel personally that the kind of the sweet spot is between four and four and a half inches, depending on, you know, your size of your hands you know what sort of person you are but obviously there is a bigger range than that you could probably say it's all the way from three and a half inches maybe up to five inches i think the five inches and above it turns into a different type of device but of course if you're using two devices you're kind of less reliant on the battery in one and so yeah. what steve was talking about there you know getting through a day becomes a little bit easier uh, 
in one sense it's interesting that's all basically because of compromises in the hardware and when i say compromise it's not just the design it's actually the technology isn't quite good enough yet and so there's definitely still a revolution waiting to happen once battery life improves and of course you know with screens you sort of think well what can happen there well foldable screens i mean we're looking further into the future there because you know, various things have been tried like the projectors but haven't really been practical you know the the samsung beam device was really interesting and it did well in some places but again it used a lot of battery life and it, it made for a thicker phone so it wasn't really practical and you can get the sort of standalone pico projectors and connect your phone to them again that didn't didn't quite work out but there is an appetite for that sort of thing and so you know some some people have said recently there's not so much room for hardware innovation i, I still disagree with that i mean i think around some things that's you know probably right but you know, there's always room for better screen or a slightly better iteration. Um, but it's probably fair to say the revolutionary stuff is restricted to fewer areas, of which I think battery life is one of them. And then it would be about materials and the nanomaterials we talked about in the podcast before. Yeah, and just to clarify what I meant by bog standard in the context of Symbian, <laughs> I, I was thinking of devices like the E52 and E72, both of which I think are still probably quite popular in a, in a low-key sort of way. And you would, there's no way you'd use the E52 or E72 um, as, your, as your main smartphone for doing everything in 2013. But uh, I'd say as part of a two-device setup. But we must Absolutely. rush on, Rafe. We We've should, got some news should. items to cover, so if I may. And, and at the risk of incurring your ire every time one of these news items appears, basically an update for the 808 or for <laughs> Bell Feature Pack 2 or even Bell, Feature, um, Bell Refresh, I always include some kind of slightly snarky, slightly pointed comment about this is the OS that won't die. And, uh, and a few pointed comments in the direction of February the 11th, uh, uh, 2011. But uh, never mind, Symbian Bell platform variants, as our new story on the site, have all got an email, calendar and music update. So here we are, May 15th. 2013 is the news story. Um, it's not entirely clear exactly which, which bugs are fixed. And Nokia's news post refers to um, targeted quality improvements. And it does refer to enhanced large attachment handling, which is not something a problem I've had. And it says also improvements for calendar event saddling. I do notice we've had a few people in the comments who had actually had issues with calendar events and synchronization of, of those up to the cloud. So uh, hopefully those bugs are fixed. I'm sure there are still a few bugs uh, for Accenture uh, yet to apply. Did you have a look, get these on your devices, Ray? I did, but like you, because probably because I'm not using a Symbian device as my primary device, I haven't really noticed any of these. And uh, yeah. uh, email is actually one of the things I find uh, a, a distressing experience on Symbian, having used the Windows Phone uh, email experience. Uh, I've talked about before about the text input but you know the music one actually kind of caught my eye because it wasn't anything you know that big a deal in some ways but you know an update to the Nokia music client and so you know, it looks it looks nicer I mean someone's using I would assume the same back end um, and it's presumably a similar back end to Nokia's other devices using you know, the Series 40 and the Windows phone devices but it just felt a bit more up to date and modern, you know, the rounded corners, the kind of the use of the, um, the cute base UI elements and things like that. So it was nice to see someone putting the effort in. I mean, I suspect, you know, as we've talked about before, you know, these bugs get fixed when they get reported into Nokia Care. They get sort of you know, made up to Accenture and they say, right, yes, we can see that bug. Let's get that fixed. But at the same time, there's clearly... Uh, some time left over for doing other things. And I think the Nokia Music Client is maybe uh, an example of that. 
yeah. and, and you know someone's obviously taking it on as a project and it actually it look, looks very nice and uh, you're quite right it's it, in some ways it's surprising the amount of updates that have been delivered and i'll be the first to put my hand up and say i expected the flow to rather slow down by now but there's you know still bits and pieces coming um, I, I guess maybe that's a, an unexpected benefit of contracting it out that you know they feel not obliged but it's part of the contract you know they've got you know, work contracted to maybe a certain number of hours. We don't actually know how it works. Um, but it maybe makes them a little more active than they would be if it was all doing being done internally. When I suspect it would just be you know, down to you know, ticking off the uh, job sheets and getting those bugs <laughs> fixed. Um, uh, it's also actually a remarkable compliment to the original designers of the update process that it can now happen so smoothly. Um, it, for years we had the situation where firmware updates were honestly a bit of a nightmare uh, and it does kind of strike me as a shame it's only in the last a couple of years I guess that it's become fairly, fairly routine to install these over-the-air updates but if you are on any of these devices it's well worth checking into SW update and you know checking out some of these updates um, so none of them have really fundamentally changed the experience for me um, I guess there's a, a sense of I like running with the latest release and making sure any bugs that I might come across uh, are quashed before I come across them. Yeah, and just to emphasise, this is available, the, the email and calendar updates and Noki Music for both Bell Refresh and the Feature Pack 2 smartphones. So basically everything since the N8 have all gotten these these patches. There is an, and a fourth patch to do with SkyDrive uploading, and I haven't put it in the show notes, Rafe. I, I guess I wouldn't really recommend it. Well, I put up a story about the, the new version that was uploaded by Nokia, um, but it disables the auto-uploading um, of new images. And there are some other issues as well. Do go and see the story. But um, unless you're a real uh, a SkyDrive fanatic, uh, and even then, if, if you're not actually expecting auto-uploading, I would probably recommend people just leave this in SW Update. If you go into the menu in SW Update, people may not know, realize this, you can actually mark off the, the updates you want to install and the ones you don't. So you don't have to install everything every time. That's something I didn't realize for the first few months. But it's there on the menu. So, yeah, do use that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and that's a, a good piece of advice. I haven't put this one on either yet, uh, possibly because I haven't run into it uh, just yet because I don't don't check SW updates regularly, Steve. I think we have to say a, a thank you for Steve for keeping on top of all these updates and keeping them in order, particularly which devices that they're available for. Um, and I did get a very nice email from one of our listeners saying, say thank you to Steve on the podcast uh, for actually letting us know about these because it reminds me to check and get them installed. There you go, Steve. A, a thank you directly on the podcast. Well, uh, thank you from me to uh, several people on Twitter because I usually get a little bird whispering in my ear, as it were, when something's available and quite often they spot it before I do, although I do generally check most of my devices uh, every couple of days, so I do catch things eventually. Um, the, 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 I guess the most controversial thing that's happened since uh, our last uh, podcast, Rafe, was I put up a smartphone camera super test. Now, this was um, me taking advantage of the fact that I had the Samsung Galaxy S4 in for review for the phone show. Plug, plug, stevelitchfield.com. And uh, Samsung have really done a bang-up job. They've, they've eked out the absolute maximum performance out of a 1 over 3-inch uh, opt optical format sensor. Um, their image processing, I have to say, is streets ahead of Nokia's on Windows Phone. Whether that's a Microsoft limitation or a Nokia problem, I don't know. I suspect it's more probably more Microsoft. But uh, the Galaxy S4 camera really is fairly stunning, um, especially in macro usage. And um, my overall scoring, this is across seven different scene tests, of which I think two are macro, 
the S-Bor scored equal with the Nokia 808, which surprised even me. I, and people pointed out, well, Steve, not that many people take macro shots. You're unusual. You take photographs of dandelions and snails and things. And that's a fair point. But there are still people out there who take photographs of their food and pets. And they're usually fairly close range. And for those things, the Galaxy S4 does a, a, a stunningly good job, whereas the 808, that's its Achilles heel. And if you were to take lots of photographs of you know, landscapes and people indoors and pubs and general out and about events, I think the 808 would win comfortably. But it, you've, you've said over and over again, Rafe, you, you absolutely nailed it, um, that these tests are absolutely critically dependent on exactly which scenes you choose to shoot and the subjects and the conditions. And you change those conditions, change those scenes, and you get dramatically different results. Yeah, and I think, you know, entirely through accident, because the way this works when Steve's doing them, I can give that veracity to, to this methodology. It's not quite a random selection of, um, you know, shots and scenes, but really it's, you know, you will choose, choose some and you'll try not to favour one over the other. You kind of do it blind and then you'll yeah. add up all the scores afterwards. This particular test, I think, probably showed the Galaxy S4 in a far more sympathetic light than it might deserve if you set it another set of tests and probably it, it just so happens that this one came out with the s4 probably doing as well as you could expect it to from any random selection of tests it would certainly be possible to design one that uh, favored the s4 even more if you did it deliberately uh, but it's a yeah. really important point in this um you know when you look at a camera shootout and this is any camera shootout you know consider what's being shot and of course, you could, in theory, design the perfect shootout with hundreds of different scenarios tested. But A, it would take a long time to wait for all the right weather conditions and probably have to visit lots of different sites. Uh, it would also take a lot of time to then analyse afterwards. And you still can't take out factors like, you know, uh, and I kid you not, was it a windy day? Because that can actually lead to a bit more camera shake, for example. Uh, and that will then favour a device that has optical image stabilization like the 920 over some of the others and equally well you know you could turn that the other way around and so there is no camera test that can sort of shoot things typically and of course you can actually do it quite scientifically and you can take photographs of you know actual test sheets and i know a lot of people um want that and there are sites to do that so go and look at them dp review i think is one that does a lot of that kind of thing and that will tell you a lot about the kind of the technical aspects or the technical performance and attributes of a camera but there's really no substitute for experience and this is some of what steve brings across and it's just you know this is what you can expect if you know what you're doing when you're taking a camera uh, shot and then try out several different smartphones in these scenarios but do remember that they are limited by, you know the conditions that we apply and for example you know steve was doing this all on fully automatic i believe if you yeah. change that and use the creative mode on the 808 you could probably get some much better shots out of the 808 and certainly it's still the case that the 808 is streaks ahead of anything else when you sort of you know are an experienced user and know what to do with it but i think it's worth reminding people that the vast majority of people will just use their smartphone just as any other camera in fully automatic mode if you know enough to start using other settings um, then perhaps you're probably a bit more savvy and you can make some decisions for yourself the the one kind of i guess addendum to that is the 808 by its very nature of its camera ui because it's i think really well designed actually encourages people to try out the creative mode and try different things there's lots of users on twitter and we could pick out some of them but that you know we feature them on the site as well and there was a good example this week of the uh, seagull photograph you know it encourages that kind of exploration so it's a long-winded way of 
you know, reaffirming what Steve said about these camera tests. I mean, it's interesting. I've tried out the Galaxy S4, uh, not as extensively as Steve. I wasn't that impressed, uh, but it may have just been the, the scenes I was shooting. And I was also looking at some of the aspects other than the camera. Uh, a lot of people like the flexibility of Samsung's design. I mean, Steve, I know you're a fan of uh, the micro SD cards and removable batteries, for example, compared to the HTC One, aren't you? Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Um, and I even wrote an entire treatise on it, which I maybe link to later on in the show notes. I'm just going back to what you're saying about um, custom designing um, tests to suit a particular camera phone. Which, if you remember when the Lumia 920 first arrived, which was late last year, um, you did a, a first of all a low set of low light tests. And I think in that test, the, the 920 was certainly very competitive with the 808. And yet, if you take a more generic um, set of tests away from the, you know, the, the speciality of the 920, then you get a, a much, much bigger difference between the 808 and the 920. And the 808 itself, if, you were, if I was setting out to try and prove the 808 miles better than the S4, I could have picked seven tests and seven designs and allowed the use of the pure view zoom. And I could have made the 808 absolutely blow the S4 away. But I was deliberately trying to do exactly what the new user would do and take shots more or less on auto. And on one of the, the tests, I did allow pure view zoom. I thought, well, the user might play with the zoom. This is what they might get. This is the results they might end up with. So... I was, def def I was trying to be as absolutely fair as possible, and I think I got the conclusion about right. Most people who buy Galaxy S4 in 2013 expecting a good camera, they're going to get a very good camera. And I've spoken to people who own the S4 since launch day, and they are still blown away. And we did some back-to-back -back tests um, in a phone shop a couple of days ago with one of the phone shop owners who had an S4. And we took, I, I was trying to impress her with how the 808 was still miles better. And I did a pure <laughs> view zoom into, a, into a, a price ticket on the opposite side of the shop. I said, there you are, look at that. And then they got the Galaxy S4 out with 13 megapixel camera with the narrower field of view, admittedly. And they applied a little digital zoom in the S4 and they took their shot. It wasn't a million miles off what the 808 was doing with its pure view zoom with the 41 megapixel sensor. So yet again, every data point I'm getting points to the fact the S4's camera is damn good. It isn't as good as the 808's overall, but do you know, it gets far closer than we might have guessed at the start of the year. Oh, absolutely. But even within that, that statement, you'll notice that Steve said, admittedly, with a smaller field of view and almost as close. Of course, you know, there's caveats <laughs> even within something like that. So any of these tests are, you know, I, I would say there's a lot of subjectivity in here. And so, you know, we'll, we're, we're talking about this stuff. We'll try and, you know, provide you with as much, you know, context and information as possible. But you are going to have to make up your own mind. But yes, from, you know, talking to other people, as I say, I've not played with an S4 for any length of time. Um, the camera does seem to be a cat above the rest. Uh, I wonder, some of the stuff I've seen does suggest that Samsung are doing more processing. I think that's something we're going to see more of in camera phones. And in certain shots, you will spot it more than others. And really, the idea of processing is to get to the, the point at which you don't really realize that it's happening. But of course, it's happening in pretty much every shot. And I was talking to Nokia's head of imaging about this, said, you know, it's you know, very difficult to choose the tuning moment because, you know, do you increase the the noise to get a bit more detail or vice versa and obviously there's a lot of these called so-called linked cofactors so yeah. that you change one thing you change something else um, and it's not just once you have to do it for every single different condition and so what's happening at, you know when they we talk about improved imaging processing algorithms the camera is effectively getting better at recognizing what circumstance it's in and then applying the necessary software processing of course, that's made more complicated by the fact that there can actually be multiple scenes within a single frame of a, a shot. And I think that's where we might see things coming on next. I mean, 
already cameras are doing the HDR type stuff or actually on some of the Nokia devices with it's the backlit mode are starting to recognize that sort of thing. Uh, I suspect we'll see more of that and also you know we've seen the introduction of smarter cameras. Um, the Galaxy S4 is a good example of you know there's a hundred different camera modes it feels like on it. I actually think it's one that's not terribly well optimized. There needs a bit more Agreed. work on the user experience there because they're there but you basically don't use them. Um, Nokia has done doing something similar and have done for a while with their Windows Phone camera lenses. But even back in the Symbian days, they were starting to play with that kind of thing, with you know some of the time lapse features, uh, you know the, the bracketing on the 808. Um, on the 925, they've introduced this smart camera, which has this same kind of. It's, a lot of it's based on burst mode, so you take multiple pictures, and that's great. You can pick out whichever one is the the best shot, and I think people would have probably used that kind of thing on Symbian devices but it's actually processing each individual frame and so it's picking out what's moving in the frame so say you've got someone you know skating across a, a, a series of burst sequences obviously they appear in a slightly different place what the smart camera stuff does it actually recognizes that and then you can create a composite shot with multiple positions of that person in the shot and then fade some of them in and out select which ones you want from multiple frames and the the user interface and the application they've done to that is really very impressive indeed uh, and i think you know encouraging more of that kind of use and it comes back to what we said before about smartphones it's not necessarily about the technology anymore it's about making it easier to use and i think that really applies to cameras and goes back to what i just said about the 808 having a camera interface that i feel invites exploration um, and that's in the technical sense. And this is more in the creative, playful sense of you know creating interesting composite images. And it does play into kind of the Instagram culture of filters and things like that. But I think there's you know room to be more sophisticated than just doing an Instagram style filter. And this burst mode stuff is, I think, the most interesting area I've seen in quite a while for you know smartphone imaging. Yeah, I still think some of the burst mode stuff is a gimmick, but I, I'll yeah, agree that yeah. the, the HTC Zoe stuff we've talked about before in the podcast, where it takes a burst mode, you basically pick the best one of of a batch, and I'm I'm pretty sure the the new Lumia uh, Nokia smart camera software will do the same thing. And of course, you can get burst mode utilities on Symbian as well, so it's not a totally alien concept. I think that's got some mileage. I was fascinated by the Lumia 928 on Windows Phone, which was released for Verizon in America, having a Xenon flash. And people will know what a fan I've been of Xenon. Um, and I'm fascinated by the, the, the tension and the, the different ways people can approach this. You can either have a, a Xenon flash, as on the N8 and the 808 and now the Lumia 928, to freeze the moment through sheer speed of the, the, the flash, how fast it is, a matter of 10 microseconds or so. Or you can have a really uh, large aperture lens and a very fast sensor, high ISO and bright dual LED flash. And you can get reasonably close. I think Nokia have gone the two different directions, the, the, the 808 and the 928, Lumia 928 in America. And then the, now the 925 they've launched on Windows Phone takes the latter approach. And I'm absolutely fascinated. I've been dying to try it, the 925, against the 808 in a typical social situation to see, OK, does, does Xenon still rule? Is my gut feel still right? Or is the new, the faster sensors, the faster lenses, the higher ISO, will that make, make up the difference? So I guess watch this space applies there. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about that, listen to the last but one All About Windows Phone Insight podcast where Steve and I talked about this Xenon issue. Uh, you know, there's actually a double edge here. I don't think anything's going to match the performance of Xenon in that ability to freeze it. But anyone who's taken a Xenon shot in that social situation, aside from being a relatively intrusive process as this bright flash goes off, um, it also tends to have colours that are quite 
stark and frozen in that moment if you're using the approach that Steve's talking about which is effectively putting up the ISO and using uh, a dual LED flash that's able to pulse for a very short period of time you actually tend to get colors that feel a little bit more natural you do sometimes get this artificiality you know the, the camera seeing better than you can because it's better able to gather in the light but I am almost to the point at which I prefer you know that kind of more natural light I mean some of the I think the 928 is actually probably an unfair example to pick on because I suspect the Xenon flash in that hasn't really been tuned as well as it might be. Right. But I, I, equally well, I think you're right, Steve. We're getting to the point now where the need for a Xenon flash is not going away, but unfortunately it's perhaps becoming even more of a fringe requirement. And so Steve's hope, he wrote an editorial on all about Windows Phone back, you know, it's 2013, the year of the Xenon flash. Sadly, not, at least from a, a Nokia point of view, I think they're probably going to follow on with the approach they're taking. And I think, I, I think they're doing the right thing there. Um, given the compromise you get with a, a Xenon flash in terms of you know, both pictures produced, but of course, then the size of that element within the, the, the camera and then, of course, the battery implications as well. What I would say, if, I hope if Nokia do kind of this flagship imaging device that is getting talked a bit about, you know, kind of the 808 but running Windows Phone. Sorry, it's not going to be running Symbian. <laughs> no way. Uh, but if they do that, what I'd actually like to see them do is kind of have both the Xenon flash and the dual LED flash on there. But I'm pretty sure the Nokia designers will go, no, we've got to have as few buttons and protuberances and bits on the device as possible <laughs> to make it look slick. Um, but uh, <laughs> that would be my personal uh, request. But and you know, and then have a, a three-way flash mode in the, the the camera app. You know, you'd be able to choose between Xenon flash, LED yeah. flash, and no flash. But uh, <laughs> I think that might be a bit of a pipe dream. But yeah, but if uh, Nokia's designers are listening, then there's a, a, t a top idea. Have, have both. Have the best of all worlds. And <laughs> um, there's one final factor, Ray, from Sinton, just to, sorry to harp on about cameras for our listeners again, but um, you're just using devices like the Nokia N8 and the A208. It's not the fact they run SIM, I mean, that, that's just a, a by the by, but it's the fact that they actually feel like cameras in the hand and that they're, they're relatively small with a proper shutter button and a premium feel in the hand. I still get the impression, even using some of these devices like the Lumia 920, it just feels a bit too cumbersome. Now, the Windows phones do have the benefit that they have proper shutter buttons, so this is kind of ameliorated. The, it drives me mad on things like the Galaxy S4. We've got a large, very expensive device you do not want to drop, and yet you've got to hold it fairly precariously, and you've got to, to use on-screen controls. There's no shutter button. I compared to that, I really, really enjoy the physical process of taking a photo with a device with a physical shutter button. I don't think that love is going to go away anytime soon. Uh, I, I agree. Again, this is a case of having the best of both worlds because I can understand there are circumstances where having the on-screen capture, you know, works better. But um, you know, there has been this design move to kind of get rid of as many buttons as possible from the device, and generally, I'm in favour of that. But I think that can go um, too far. And, you know, although it results in a really nice design that you get used to using the device in that particular way, there are, you know, some things where it makes sense to have it. And I think the camera capture button and things like, you know, lock buttons and volume controls, the perfect example of this, you can, you know, hide them away to an extent on the side of the device. But, you know, there's a reason that, you know, they were around in the first place. That kind of analog mechanism of doing something still works really well. And for me, the, the most obvious example of this is you know, the way that you hold down the camera shutter button and the camera app starts and you can then take a, a photo, you know, often a second or two later 
on ones where you have to fiddle about on the screen that you know from the moment of taking it out of your pocket to taking the first shot it takes longer and that can be all important when you're capturing a magic moment yeah, absolutely we're kind of out of time Rafe um, I was going to mention things like FMOBI the Facebook client is now back in business back in the store and they fixed the issues with Facebook authentication um, I just very quickly Rafe I guess this is symptomatic of uh, the, the, the uphill battle Symbian applications are going to have throughout the year as the, the services they tie into online they, they, the, the, the APIs get changed and the Symbian app developers may not be around to fix them which means the poor users are stuck with applications which don't work anymore that's right. We, we did comment on this before. We said that the applications most likely to fail are those attached to some kind of back-end service. Yeah. Either those service gets updated um, and actually, you know, you look at the API for something like Twitter, it's getting updated and the authentication mechanism for various services changes as, you know, sort of new security regime comes in. Um, well, okay, in the case of Twitter, you know, the author of Gravity, uh, you know, is doing a great job keeping that updated. But, you know, other applications aren't necessarily going to be so fortunate. Um, is that going to force people off their Symbian device? I would hope not, because, um, you know, the really critical ones, they tend to have quite active developer. And, and most of the big services will maintain some kind of backward legacy. But particularly for third-party apps, and FMOB is maybe an example of this, you will, will come across this. Um, so I guess it depends on the sort of applications that you use. Uh, and people may end up having to fall back to the mobile web version of sites and things like that. Uh, but I'm afraid this is inevitable. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen it happen to other devices. Uh, you, know, you look at something like the Palm Pre, for example, and even some of the, the Palm devices more generally. Um, I know users have had that kind of experience. And uh, uh, I guess going back to your sign days, Steve, um, this didn't apply so much because you had, you know, less online components to them but there were developers disappearing and so updates stopped coming and so there was a, a new device or something came out that needed tweaking um, yeah. or the export it, it disappeared and it's one of the problems that uh, a community that's you know based on devices that are basically no longer being produced no longer being updated or supported fully is going to have to face and nothing you can really do about it yeah, absolutely. We've said numerous times every operating system, whether on desktop or mobile, has a natural life cycle. And it is, it is fair to say that Symbian's life cycle is, is winding down. And these are the sort of issues people will have. But uh, thank you to the developers out there who are keeping their apps up to date. And I think we've still got a fair few months, if not years, of, of the main applications carrying on working. So let's cross uh, yeah. that. I mean, the devices won't suddenly stop working. And to, yeah. to be honest, this is something that applies to any other platform as, as well you know once a device gets over the two-year-old period you know it starts to maybe fall away um, of course on platforms that are still active you know the chances of a developer updating application are probably greater but actually it's not just you know uh, you know this problem can happen to active platforms you know you think about developers going right well i'm no longer going to bother updating my app for android say 1.5 devices or some of the older versions yeah. you know, so it can happen there as well and you know, it's kind of hard to, you know, forget that this, you think about the Android devices, you think about them having been around for a while. Actually, they're still relatively new. So there are some devices that are, you know, younger than something like the N8 and yet aren't receiving very good support either from their manufacturer in terms of firmware updates. And that can then obviously have a knock-on effect on the apps because I think a lot of, you know, certainly you can really see the shift in momentum to Android uh, 2, but I think that's gradually going to shift up to 2.3 and, of course, the subsequent versions to that as well, especially yeah. with some of the UI changes that have happened there. 
Um, maybe less acute, but it, it's still a factor, I think. Absolutely. Just a brief testimony uh, before we finish the podcast. I, I had the Motorola XT720 staying with my Xenon fetish. <laughs> it was the, the just about the only Android phone to have a Xenon flash. I, I bought it and uh, it was Android 2.2. It got updated to 2.3, but then it got stuck there. And it has, so, so the internal memory was back to N97 levels, if you can think back to this in the Symbian world analogy. And to get to the point where you could hard reset an XT720 today and simply update it with the app update. So, for example, the new Gmail app, the latest version of Google Maps, the essential, the core built-in apps getting their own updates direct from Google, and just those are enough to fill the internal disk before you've even put your data on. So we've got, we've got a whole generation of Android devices that are, as you say, not much, either younger than the N8 or around the same era, which are almost unusable, whereas the N8, you could argue, is still very usable today. So, Yahoo sucks Android. <laughs> Symbian rules, rules. Yay, yay. And, and the same applies in the iOS world. I think it's less acute there, and that's really down to the fact that there's just a couple of devices that, to be supported. But of course, the older ones, which are on less capable hardware, you know, they don't get you know the full feature updates. Um, you know, you've now got iOS versions that don't run on the older devices, and that again has a knock-on effect on apps because if an yeah. app relies on a new API, and, and to be fair, the same thing happened in the Symbian world. You know, we talk about Bell and Bell refresh, and actually, we're quite lucky in that from the N8 devices onwards, there's a, a, you know, it's pretty much everything's the same. Um, but then you have the S65 edition device, which isn't all that long ago. And then obviously going back further to third edition, things like that. And so it, it's, it's not an issue that ever gets talked about because I think a lot of people in the media and in the industry don't use devices for that long. But for, for those who, you know, hold on to a device for all two years of their contract, it can become an issue by the end of that time. And certainly if they then go into a third or even fourth year, which is by, anyways, not, not uncommon. You know, you get outside the tech adopters and the sort of people who probably listen to this podcast, you know, I'm sure you've got friends and family who are using devices that are four or five years old. Okay, it's maybe a minority, but it's you know it's not a small minority. I think it's certain. He says having absolutely no numbers on which to base is common and just going <laughs> gut feel. But there we go. We can do that on the podcast. Yeah, I think people are probably fed up with us rambling on now, Rafe. So maybe we should yes. wind this to a halt. Yeah, we're going over the fifty-minute mark, which is much longer than we usually manage for Zoom podcast. And we didn't even get through. There's uh, some other things we were going to talk about. We'll uh, save them up for the the next podcast, and maybe it won't be three weeks. Um, but we'll we'll see. Do tune in next time. Yeah, thanks very much for listening. We will catch you next time. This has been the All About Symbian podcast. Bye for now.